Okay. Um, we are on uh, chapter 26, the person of Christ. We've we've done two weeks previous to this. We did one on the humanity of Christ. I'm going to review that. One on the deity of Christ. I'll review that quickly. And now this morning, I want to talk for this last Sunday morning on this three-part series on how can Jesus be God and man in one person. Um, the lesson on the person of Christ. Definition, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. That's the summary of what I want to say. Now, we talked about the humanity of Christ, and this is on your outline. He was born of a virgin, and the excellent sermon this morning by our guest speaker on this very passage about the virgin birth of Christ and Joseph and Mary. Human weaknesses and limitations. Um, Jesus had a human body. He grew and became strong. He uh, increased in wisdom and stature. He was weary. He was thirsty. He was hungry. Uh, he had flesh and bones even after his resurrection, Luke 24, 39. And then he had a human mind. This is important for one of these heresies we're going to talk about in a few minutes, a historic heresy called Apollinarianism. Uh, Jesus increased in wisdom. That is, he had a truly human mind. He learned obedience through what he suffered, and there were limitations to his knowledge in some sense, Mark 13, 32. He also had a human soul and human emotions. John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled. Uh, John 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was sorrowful. He wept. I just see Garth here. Garth, thank you so much for your faithful service in doing that copying and passing things out uh, every week. So... <laughs> <laughs> Sandy's proud of him. Anybody need an outline? You, you, missing an outline? Or okay. Oh, oh, right up here in front. Need one. Oh, oh good. We're set. And, oh. Okay, so uh, he had a human soul and human emotions. Um, and, uh, he, and let's see. Um, a number, letter D, people near Jesus saw him only as a man. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Uh, his brothers didn't even believe in him, and Mark 6, 3, isn't this the carpenter? Um, and uh, he was sinless, however, he, he, uh, and, and we looked at about 15 or 20 passages that says he's the holy and righteous one, he committed no sin, etc. Now, uh, last time, and I'll just have you look at your outline here, why is it important to insist on Jesus' true humanity? And on your outline there, I have A, B, C, D, E, F, to be a representative, to obey God on our behalf. That's to die for us. To be a substitute. Oh, I'm sorry, representative, to live a life of obedience on our behalf. B, to be a substitute, to die for us. C, to be an example so we could follow his example in our life. D, to be a sympathetic high priest. And uh, I mentioned how we can go to Jesus with any difficulty or temptation and say, Lord, well, you were a man. You know what this is like. And, um, I, I mean, it was just a little tiny thing, but I woke up with a little pain in my ankle this morning, and I said, well, Lord, you know what it's like to have a pain in your ankle. Um, please uh, help me to walk with that, and that pain went away, so I'm glad. Um, but, uh, but in little things and in big things, he's a sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses. He's the mediator between God and man, and he's the human ruler over creation, so that a man... God's image might rule over creation. All of those things, it's really important to insist on Jesus' humanity, as opposed to the error or the heresy that I mentioned called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, that Jesus only looked like a man. He only appeared to be a man, but wasn't a true man. Well, the church rejected that. So we have to insist not just on the deity of Christ, but the full humanity of Christ. 
or he couldn't die in our place, he couldn't be our representative, etc. B, the deity of Christ, then, oops, point seven, Jesus will be a man forever. He ascended into heaven in his human flesh and blood body and bones, flesh and blood and bones body, and, uh, and, uh, and he will come back in the same way with the body that he took up into heaven, his resurrection body. All right, then, the deity of Christ, we looked at a number of scriptural claims, the word theos, or God, the Greek word for God is used of Christ, a number of verses, and then the word Lord, or kurios, also used of him in a strong Old Testament sense, meaning the Lord God, and um, other strong claims to deity, where he said, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the light of the world, um, things that only could be true of God himself. He could still the storm, speak to the wind and the waves, and it would be still, and the disciples could say, well, who is this, that even the wind and the wave obey him? And against the Old Testament background, where God commands the winds, God commands the waves, we see that this is an evidence of deity as well. And we looked through other evidences of Christ's deity. I looked for a moment at this idea, did Christ give up some of his attributes while on earth, his divine attributes, called the kenosis theory. My answer to that was no. This is a uh, theory invented by liberal German theologians in the, 19, uh, in the 18th century, 19th century, sorry, and, um, and um, I'm not saying that everything coming out of Germany is uh, bad or wrong, but this was a bad idea, and uh, no, Jesus could not be fully God if he gave up some of his attributes. The early church didn't understand it that way. I think where Philippians 2 says he emptied himself or made himself nothing, it means he gave up his glory and honor and status in heaven, but not that he gave up some of his attributes. Um, conclusion, not only is Christ fully human, but he's fully divine. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Look just for a moment, number five, I'm going to skip over that, objections to the incarnation or the uh, deity of Christ. Uh, by Church of England clergymen in 1977, but uh, that was based on human reasoning, not on the Word of God and its truth. Why was We talked about why was Jesus' humanity necessary to represent us, to die for us, to understand us, etc. Well, why was Je Jesus' deity necessary? Well, I think certainly in order to be um, to bear the penalty for our sins. That is, someone who is merely one human being couldn't bear the penalty for the sins of all those from all humanity through all history who would be saved. Um, and then only to be the, the one mediator would be God and man who is the mediator between uh, us and God, and also to reveal God to us. He, um, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He had to be truly God to reveal God truly to us. And therefore, confession of Jesus' deity is necessary to genuine Christianity as well. So um, that was where we ended up last week. Now we are at this last section of the outline on page 3, point C, the incarnation, deity, and humanity in the one person of Christ. The word incarnation is not in the Bible, but um, it means the infleshness uh, of Jesus. And, and it's used as a summary word to mean God taking, human, uh, taking a human nature, being incarnate or living among us as a man. Now, before we try to give a positive explanation of how Jesus could be God and man in one person, I want to walk through three inadequate views of the person of Christ. These are views that I suppose well-meaning Bible teachers 
put forth early in the history of the church. Um, Apollinarius, uh, Nestorius, Eutyches, I'll talk about them in a few minutes. Um, but the church ultimately rejected their ideas of how this could work. You see, people started out and they said, okay, Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and that's probably where you are. All right, I believe it. But then people say, well, how, how could that work? How, how could he be fully God and fully man? Aren't there some contradictions there? Um, how could he be hungry and yet omnipotent? How could he be 30 years old and yet eternal? How could he say, I'm leaving the world, and yet say, I'm going to be with you always? I mean, aren't there some... How can, how can one person be God and man? And when the church started to put that together, people put forth some wrong ideas. And so I'm going to talk about three inadequate views of the deity of Christ. The first one is called Apollinarianism, and Apollinaris became bishop of Laodicea. It's one of the seven churches of Revelation. I believe it's now in modern Turkey. Apollinaris became bishop of Laodicea in AD 361. So you see it was in the 4th century that, um, that he was promoting this view. And he said, well, I've got it figured out. Christ had a human body only, but his mind and his spirit were from his divine nature. He didn't really have a human mind like you and I do and a human spirit like you and I do. Spirit or soul. It was just a just a physical body. And the example that some people, I didn't make, maybe I did make this up, but somebody made this up. It's like meeting Mickey Mouse at Disney World. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't know if you've ever gone to Disney World, but there are these characters, these Disney characters that are walking around, and you go up and you can shake, and Mickey Mouse shakes hands with you. He's about this high, and he's all, but it's not really a mouse. <laughs> it's just got a mouse costume. It's really a human being inside. See? Oh, Sandy's disappointed. <laughs> she thought it was really me. And our kids were little. They got to meet Mickey Mouse. And they, okay. But, but let me tell you, it's not really a mouse. It's just a mouse costume. And see, Apollinaire said, um, Jesus was not really a man. It was just a man costume. See, it was just a man body. But the real inside was God. And that's all he was. And so uh, my little schematic diagram here is that uh, Jesus, according to Apollinaris, Jesus had this human body and he had a divine nature and those two came together. And he got a following and people were saying, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Now, that, now we can understand that. But after a while, people began to say, no, there's a problem here. It's not just that our bodies need salvation. Our minds and our spirits need salvation, too. If, if this is just a, a fake man, just with a man costume, this is not a true man to represent all of us. And so how could he really be our representative? So if Jesus doesn't have a human mind and human emotions and human spirit and learn like a human being, then he's not truly man. And then he doesn't represent us. Then he can't, they can't die in our place. Then he can't be our example. It's just, he's not real. They began to look at Bible verses that said that Jesus had a human mind and a human spirit. He increased in wisdom, Luke 2.52, John 12.27, and John 13.31. Now is my soul troubled. Now 
and Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And so I said, look, this is, this is not just the divine nature inside. This is really human spirit being troubled and feeling emotions. And, uh, and in the days of his flesh, Jesus, the book of Hebrews, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He was heard for his godly fear. Or Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way as we are. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so this has to be a full, true man, not just a man costume, not just a, a, a human body. And so Apollinarianism was rejected by several church councils between the years 362 and 381. And I don't think anybody today holds to Apollinarianism. Well, let's get another try here. Another view was Nestorianism. Nestorius was a popular preacher at Antioch. After 428, uh, he became bishop of Constantinople. Now, <clears throat> I know um, it's nice to be famous, but you really don't want your name famous because you invented a heresy. Uh, it's just, it's, it's not the thing you want to be famous for. But anyway, Apollinaris has that distinction, and now, <clears throat> and now Nestorius. <clears throat> Perhaps wrongly so on his part, but we'll tell, talk about that in a minute. The stories came along and he said, well, I've got it. We have two distinct persons. We have a fully human person and a fully divine person, <clears throat> and they're just in one body, but they're distinct persons, entire whole persons. And so the picture here on the schematic is <clears throat> a human person <clears throat> and a divine person inside of Jesus somehow um, working in Jesus' body, but, but a whole human person. And the example here, that at least I've heard J.I. Packer use, is the example of a circus horse where it's really two men inside the horse, and one is the hind legs and one is the front legs, and kind of walks around, and it's humorous, and everybody laughs. Um, but it's two separate people inside the horse. Okay? And if they don't agree where they're going, you've got a mess. <laughs> now, this was kind of a sophisticated idea, but the church eventually said, no, there are problems with this too. The problem is that Jesus is shown in the Gospels as I, not as we. There is no place in the Gospels where Jesus is viewed as two persons, where he would say, where he would, I, you know, now there's another example. I just, I just thought of um, uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings, where it looks like you've got two persons inside of him, and he's trying, he's, shall, shall he be good, and shall he be bad, and he's kind of talking to himself. Um, maybe a, a kind of a split personality or something. Jesus isn't that way. He's always I. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say, um, uh, well, I, you don't get his divine and human nature arguing with each other or discussing with each other or anything like that. that. That's very foreign to anything in the Gospels. And actually, kind of a P.S., although this heresy goes by the name of Nestorius, he probably never actually taught that. It was more his followers who were, promoting it and, and, and uh, following it. But the church said, no, you can't have two persons in one body. You've got to have one person. 
Now, somebody's going to say, what do you mean person? And I'm going to say, I don't know. Um, an entity that, that has the ability to act, interact with other people and carry out uh, um, personal activities. But beyond that, it's a little bit hard to know, but it's not two persons, in other words. You've got to have one person. All right. Now, here's the third idea, and that's monophysitism. Mono, one, phusis, nature, and that is that Jesus had one nature that was different from both a human nature and a divine nature. And it's also called Eutychianism because Eutyches, 378 to 454, was the leader of a monastery at Constantinople, modern Istanbul, and he taught this view. He said, you know what? When the divine nature came and joined to the human nature, the divine nature was so much greater, it just absorbed the human nature, and they mixed together, and something new resulted. So here is the diagram. Here's the small human nature and the large divine nature going together into some one new nature that's much greater than a human being, but because it's mixed together, it's less than God. It's a new kind of being, a Latin phrase, a tertium quid, a third kind of thing. Better than human, not quite as good as being God. <clears throat> it's a new nature. And the example of Eutychianism is uh, if you put a drop of ink in water, that's like Jesus' human nature going into his divine nature. Now, if I took an old quill pen and put a few drops of ink in this bottle of water, I don't think E.G. would want to drink it anymore because it's not really water anymore. But you can't put it in your pen and write with it because it's not really ink anymore either. It's a third kind of thing. It's an ink and water mix. It's, it's, and so uh, that's, that's the idea of Eutychianism. The problem is, if you have Jesus' human nature just mixed into and combined with and absorbed by his divine nature, then you don't really have a true man anymore, because it's greater than a man, some kind of superhero character or something. But if you have Jesus' divine nature mixed so that it's diluted, then you don't really have true God anymore either. Whoa, Eutychianism, we lose on both counts. We don't have a God who can, who can come and show us who God is like, and we don't have a God who can bear the penalty for all our sins, and we don't have a man who can represent us and die for us. We lose salvation on both counts. You lose deity and you lose humanity. This, this thing really is not a good idea at all. So what was the solution to the controversy? Well, it's interesting to me that the solution that was accepted by the church throughout history after that point didn't come until 451 AD. That's 400 years after the time of the New Testament. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Now, people believed in Jesus' deity. They believed in Jesus' humanity before that time, but they just weren't quite sure how to explain how it went together. Then a church council was called with, I've forgotten the number, I'm thinking between two, around 300 maybe, church leaders and teachers from 
around the different parts of the uh, Christian world, came to Chalcedon, which is a, a city outside of Constantinople, outside of modern-day Istanbul, in October of 451 AD. And they put together something called the Chalcedonian Creed. It's just a basically a, a really long paragraph. And it has been affirmed by Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Protestant churches ever since as a very helpful and accurate definition of how Jesus' deity and humanity could work together in one person. Now, before I get to the wording of the Chalcedonian Creed, I'm going to give you a background on how they tried to put together the Bible verses. They basically said, we've got to combine texts on Jesus' deity and humanity. And so that, now these are my words. These aren't the words of the Chalcedonian Creed yet, but I'm putting it in kind of modern English. That means that one nature does some things the other nature does not do. Here the wording of the Chalcedonian Creed is, the property of each nature is preserved. So if the property of deity is to be omnipotent, Jesus retains the property of being omnipotent. He can still still the sea. If the property of humanity is to be weak and tired, Jesus can be weak and tired. The property of each nature is preserved. So <clears throat> that means, for instance, that Jesus' human nature, and look, I, one time I talked about this earlier in the class, and somebody called me afterward and said, Wayne, I've got a problem with this phrase, human nature. When I use the phrase human nature, it means error, sin, mistake, human, that's your human nature. And that's not the way it's been used historically in this controversy. In this controversy, it means Jesus' genuine manhood. It doesn't mean sinful human nature or anything like that. And I, I'm not going to change the terminology that's been used for hundreds of years just because it's used in another way now. Uh, but we just kind of got to get rid, got, got used to that. His human nature ascended into heaven. That is his body and human mind and soul. He ascended into heaven, is no longer in the world. But his divine nature is everywhere present. And so in Acts 1, for, or, or in John 16 and 17, Jesus can say, I'm leaving the world, I'm no longer in the world, I'm going to the Father. That's true, he left the world. And uh, Acts 1, 9 to 11, he ascended into heaven and the angel said, uh, as they watched him go into heaven, Jesus is going to come back in the same way you saw him going to heaven. Uh, and yet, Jesus, though he left the world, he could also say, Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, how could he go to heaven and be with us always? I think by saying his human nature went up to heaven and his divine nature stays with us. And John 14, 23. Why am I not remembering that? John 14, 23. Oh yeah, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus comes to live within us, so he's everywhere present. But he went to heaven. Both are true. One's true of the human nature, one's of the divine nature. Is that making sense? Okay. Yes? Okay. Yep. Jim? What? Ah, oh, yeah. Uh, let me read that again. If anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him. So it means Jesus and the Father. He can talk about him, himself and the Father as we. Good, you're really listening there. But, the, but not talking about himself as we. Good. <clears throat> um, 
Jesus was 30 years old, according to his human nature, but he also eternally existed, according to his divine nature. He can say, before Abraham was, I am. Here's some more. He was weak and tired in his human nature. We listed verses with that, with that uh, statement. But his divine nature was omnipotent, and so he can still the storm at sea, uh, or in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or Hebrews 1.3, he is continually carrying along the universe by his word of power. Well, that's omnipotence. Continually carrying along or sustaining the whole universe by his word of power. Um, and I think that both were true, one of his human nature and one of his divine nature. So, if you ask me, when Jesus was asleep in the boat, Matthew 8, 24, because he was tired, was he also, in his divine nature, continually carrying along all things by his word of power, Hebrews 1, 13, upholding the universe? I would say yes. And you say, how can that be? Yeah, he's God, but still also a man. It's, it's, and there we have to say, it's mystery. It's, how can this be? It's just, it's just astounding to think about. It is, by far, I think, the greatest miracle in the history of the universe that God, the Son of God, could join himself to a genuine human nature and become one person. How can this be? But I think it's true. Sandy. Mm-hmm. That I go away, unless I go away to counsel her, yep. I go away, I'm a hindrance to you, that makes sense. That was the concept. Yep. Was Jesus saying, in a sense, that the, the limits, the limits of his humanity um, was a geographical limit, that he could only be one place at one time. And so it was better for them um, because then the comforter uh, and could come and he would be everywhere in in them. Okay. The other, the other thing is when Christ is with us, okay. um, If he is at the right hand of God, the father, interceding for us. Um, Is he with us by the Spirit of Christ? Because the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ in, you know, different places, as you know far better than I. Okay, Uh, two questions. I think, yes, definitely, Sandy, in John 16, 7, where he says, it is your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come, but if I go, I will send him to you. I do think it's because... Jesus, while he was on earth, was only in one place at one time because his ministry was primarily, if not entirely, through uh, where his human body was located. Um, And so it was in the wisdom of God that his human nature was taken up to heaven so the Holy Spirit could come and be everywhere present. I think that is at least part of what it means that it's good that I go away. Uh, Another part is that God had ordained that the Holy Spirit would be the one to empower us and dwell with us, and those roles needed to be carried out by the Holy Spirit. Um, 
the second half of your question was. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, is it just the Holy Spirit within us? No, I think it is all three members of the Trinity who dwell within us, and we get a number of verses like that. The John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Or Revelation 3:20, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Or Paul can say in Galatians 2, Christ, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, so, uh, yes, Christ is also within us, his divine nature only within us, though, and in cooperation with the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. More than that, I'm not sure that I know. Yeah, good. There was another hand over here, just for a minute. Okay. Um, so with regard to Jesus' death, then, I think we need to say that Jesus' human nature died. His heart stopped beating, his mind stopped functioning, um, and uh, Luke 23:46, Jesus said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And having said that, he, this he breathed his last. So he breathed his last. He stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. His brainwaves stopped functioning. And his spirit went into the presence of God the Father in heaven, just as ours will when on the day we die. Our body remains on the earth. So he's a pattern for us. And then um, on Easter Sunday morning, his human spirit came back into his body in the tomb, and it was made alive, and he was raised uh, to newness of life. But what happened all that time during Jesus, to Jesus' divine nature? His divine nature did not die could not die. He was fully God. He could not, could not die. In fact, there are some verses that indicate that Jesus' divine nature, that Jesus himself was involved in raising himself from the dead. So, not only did the Father raise him from the dead, or not only was he raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also there was an involvement of Jesus himself, so that in John 2.19 he can say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought, what do you mean, this temple, this temple made of stone and everything? And, and they misunderstood, but then John says, but he spoke of the temple of his body. So he was speaking about his body that he would raise up. In three days, I will raise it up. And then John 10, 17 to 18, Jesus says that he, um, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So he yielded his spirit. He breathed his last. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He voluntarily gave up his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. So uh, those verses indicate that Jesus' divine nature did not die, remained alive and was involved uh, in raising the person of Jesus or the, the human nature of Jesus from the dead. To preserve the reality of Jesus' human nature, and here was the hard question, but the church at uh, Chalcedon eventually came to say this, 
we must say that Jesus had two wills, a human will and a divine will, and two centers of consciousness, a human and divine center of consciousness, so that Jesus' human consciousness did not know the time of his return, Mark 13, 32, just as he learned things, he increased in wisdom, etc. But his divine consciousness knew all things. Several times the Bible says, Lord, you know all things. And Jesus' human will was tempted, Hebrews 4.15, he's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, but his divine will cannot be tempted, James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil. Now, how is that different from saying that Jesus was two persons? The, the, the church that pondered this and argued about this, the church leaders said, the centers of consciousness must apparently belong to the natures and not to the person. And so Jesus was in that respect different from us, but somehow integrated as one person. Now, here's the example um, that, uh, that somebody has suggested, J.I. Packer suggested once, and I think it's appropriate, that Jesus operated often on the basis of his human knowledge and human consciousness but at any time, he could call to mind any fact in the universe. So, if I say to John Markle, what were you doing Thursday night at 7 o'clock? <laughs> he was just coming home from work. It, you knew it, but it took you a minute to kind of think through Thursday, Thursday. Okay, Thursday I was at work at 7 o'clock. I was just coming home from work. So it was there, but you had to call it to mind. And that may be a faint analogy or a little analogy to how Jesus could be teaching and talking. All of a sudden, he knows the thoughts of the Pharisees, or he knows what they're thinking in their hearts. Okay, or he knows who's going to betray him. He knew all men, says John 2, and needed no one to tell him what was in man. So, or Peter can say, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So I, that helps me understand. Now, I'll tell you, this is hard because there's never been an example of someone who is truly God and truly man. But the idea of having two centers of consciousness and Jesus yet being one person is the best we can do if we're going to say the property of each nature is preserved. That is, the property of humanity is preserved. That means learning. The property of deity is preserved. That means being omniscient. I think we need two centers of consciousness. Yet the church said, though we don't fully understand, that doesn't mean two persons, still integrated into one person. Now we get these people who object, these Church of England clergymen, the myth of God incarnate. They say, this is incomprehensible, which means they can't understand it. <laughs> and I agree, because there never has been anyone who is a human being and yet fully God. So we're talking about a very unique situation, but I think this is the right solution. Then we can say also that anything that either nature does, the person of Christ does. And so that helps explain some of these verses, where Jesus could say, before Abraham was, I am. Well, it's actually just his, it's just his divine nature that existed before Abraham, but he could say it about the whole of himself. Before Abraham was, I am. Or he could say, I am leaving the world, but that's just his human nature. Or he could say, I am with you, but that's just a divine nature. So anything that either nature does, the person does. So, but, but we, there's a little bit of an analogy in human experience to that, too. I mean, I could say, 
I'm, I'm shining the laser pointer at the screen. Actually, my left foot isn't having anything to do with it. It's just my hand that's shining the laser pointer at the screen, right? This ear isn't doing anything about the laser pointer either. But since part of me is doing it, I'm doing it. Okay? So when Jesus could say, I'm leaving the world, even though it was his human nature, he as a person was leaving the world. And though he could say, I'm with you always, even though it was divine nature, he could say, I am with you always. I think that makes sense. And so um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. The person of Christ somehow experienced what it is to suffer and die for our sins, even though his divine nature did not die. There's another verse that I don't have on the transparency that's a pretty amazing verse in 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says, none of the rulers of this world understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's pretty strong. Crucified means put to death. The Lord of glory, that kind of reminds you of his divine nature, but it's just speaking about the person, even though it was just his human nature that was put to death. Okay, now I'll stop. See if you want to ask about that. Okay, um, 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 Rosemary, yeah. died for our sins as a human yep. because he had suffered as we did. Yep. Is it because of his divine nature that he could do that? Why? <laughs> you know, Adam all the way down. Yep. You know, we're all sinners. How did he do it just yep. on a human? That's a, that's a really hard question, Rosemary. And I've thought about it, and I've wondered about it, and theologians have thought about it. What is the role of Christ's divine nature at his death? And the problem is, there just isn't much in terms of verses that talk about that exactly. I think, and, and you get theologians kind of getting different theories, I think that the divine nature of the Son was also, for a, a brief time, the object of the wrath of the Father. I'm not sure about that. But when I go back to Jesus' baptism in the, uh, at the Jordan River, God the Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the Father expresses delight in the person of the Son. And if the Father could express delight in the person of the Son, then by analogy it seems that the Father also would be able to see the Son as sin and pour his wrath upon him. That helps, understand, helps me understand how, because I think even a sinless man like Adam, if the, whole, if the weight of the sins of the world had been put on him and the wrath of God against the sins of the world would have been put on him for an instant, it would have destroyed him, I think. I don't know. And so I think he had to be God in order to bear the penalty for our sin. And there in some way, the divine nature of the Son was the object of the Father's wrath at the, at the cross. But 
in no way did the divine nature of the Son become die or become weakened or harmed. He just experienced the personal outpouring of the wrath of the Father at that time, I think. Um, and that explains how Jesus could be able to bear the wrath of God that was due to the sins of all of us. But that's the best I can do. It's, it's, it's mystery, and we... We may get to heaven and learn more and just be overwhelmed with wonder and awe and amazement at how this happened. And, and it may be that there will be mystery there that we'll never understand. Oh. Yeah. What else? Um, Norma, just hold on a second and get the... Can a person be saved and not believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ? Um, I'm not sure. It's inconsistent. If a person, and you get these verses in 1 John, anyone who does not have the Son does not have the Father. If you do not abide in the doctrine of the Son, you don't abide in the Father. Um, uh, it's inconsistent. But... Could a person like Arius in the Trinitarian controversy who believed that the Son was created, could he have been saved because he trusted in Jesus to bear the penalty for his sin? He would be saved in spite of what he believed about that, not because of what he believed about that. But there can be some heart faith in people who are inconsistent in their thinking. So, so I think I want to allow the possibility but it's irregular, and it's not what, not what the Bible talks about as being normal. And it will eventually lead to the unraveling and the loss of the Christian faith through others who hold that. Uh, but the question of what God does in the hearts of individual people who have bad doctrine is a hard question, because we don't know. We don't know, in the, you know what's in people's hearts and if there is genuine faith anyway. But it's, but it's inconsistent. I had someone, you know, that I was talking to one time, you know, they said that they were, you know, people that believed that yeah. Jesus was God scared yeah. them. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I've had different people that, you know, that's an issue with them. Right. They don't believe, yeah. you know, yeah. in in the divinities. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's good they were scared. I mean... Uh, when Jesus calmed the storm at sea, uh, the disciples are—they're afraid. They say, "Who is this? We're standing next to someone that can command the, the, the wind and the waves." And and other times when Jesus heals with miraculous power, people are afraid because the power of God is there. And so, I wouldn't run away from that and say, "That's who He is. Do you accept it?" Hmm. Yeah. What else? Okay. Um, Joyce. Does the oneness of the divine Christ and the human Christ parallel the relationship of the Trinity and the uh, oneness there. There's some. There's that's great uh, question. In we talked about the Trinity a few weeks ago, months ago. We have three persons and yet one being in God. And in Jesus, we have one person with two natures. And so there are some parallels. Um, in that there's a unity there that's a mystery that we don't understand. 
but it's a little different because you have three persons in the Trinity and you just have one person here with Christ. And what happened was, if you can picture Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in the Trinity, then the human nature of Christ was joined just to the one person of the Trinity, not to the Father or the Holy Spirit, and then became the one person of Jesus without tearing apart the Trinity, however that could be. Jack. I think this is two things. I'm trying to understand when um, Jesus went to the cross and died. He had he didn't ascend. His um, divine didn't ascend yet. So what does he do? Step aside as Mickey's laying in the tomb, then re-inhabit, come back, and he would have come back different. He wouldn't have come back fully man, would he? At that point, he would would be different. And then as he ascended, he takes the earth suit with him. And it's no longer, I mean, fully man goes away. Goes away. Um, okay. Um, this is really similar to the question Rosemary asked. And Jack, I'm just, I'm doing my best to try to explain how I understand it, but I'm not absolutely sure because we're in an area where we're treading right where the scripture just it doesn't take us any farther. So, But I think what happened is this. Jesus' divine nature was always omnipresent. It, it filled every point of space in the whole universe. Even when he was on earth, his divine nature was everywhere present. And yet the focus of his activity was where his human body was on earth. When Jesus died on the cross, okay, human body, ceases to function, is put in the grave. Human spirit goes to the Father in heaven. Divine nature is everywhere present, as it always has been, but is somehow still linked to his dead human body and his living human soul, or spirit, and somehow there's a connection between the divine nature and those things, but I don't understand. I mean... Maybe, maybe Jesus' divine nature then still was, in a way, experiencing the um, sadness and waiting um, while the body was in the grave and longing to be fully rejoined with the Father, but still as when our spirits die, we go to heaven, there's rejoicing in the presence of the Father. His divine nature was also, I think, simultaneously rejoicing with that unity. And so it, it, it's a very... But you're saying that the spirit, um, you think, went... Because he, when Mary came, he said, don't cling to me, I haven't, haven't ascended yet. But I you think, think the spirit went up I, and it came, yeah, came back? Yes, yes, yes. Because when he says, I have not yet ascended to my Father and your Father, I think he means in his reunited his spirit, and soul, spirit and body, yeah. I think it's wonderful that we ponder these things, um, but um, it, it, it is so deep and so mysterious, and it's, it's kind of wonderful for simple-minded people like me um, that I don't even think about those things, and uh, I just, and I'm so happy and trust the Lord, and it's, you know, it's sort of like I, 
uh, and people would call me foolish for trusting our government, but I sort of trust our government that hopefully they've got some kind of, uh, you know, stealth bomber or something that they're developing, you know, but I don't need to know all the details, but I trust that they're doing that. And, uh, but I, I think it's wonderful that we ponder these things, but we sure aren't going to be able to grasp the depth of it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Tammy, thank you. And, uh, and maybe a lot of those questions I'm saying, I don't know, I don't know, but I think perhaps. I see one more question over here, and then I want to read through the Chalcedonian Creed. Um, What's your name? Lachelle Smith. Lachelle. Um, I'm a second grade school teacher at Scottsdale Christian Academy, yeah. and um, this even is overwhelming in our minds, but when you're dealing with seven and eight-year-olds, and they're asking you, and we're talking about who God really is. Yeah. And one of the things I do with, with them is talk to them about the properties of water mm -hmm. and how water can be solid liquids and gases. Mm -hmm. And that and kind of relate that to who God really is, mm -hmm. the Father, Son, okay. Spirit. What, what do you feel about that? Is that something I should be doing? Is it, is it, is it spiritual, biblical? If you say it's kind of like this, but not exactly. Okay, and those are kind of helpful ways to teach. I mean, somebody said, well, Wayne, after, after I'd lectured four hours on the Trinity, someone said, well, how did you ever teach that to children? And I said, well, we just told our kids that God is three persons and one God. <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> so, I mean, the, everything can be summarized more simply. It's just that when you try to unpack how do the details work out, then, then uh, it's harder. All right, let's go to this Chalcedonian Creed. What I'd like to do is just uh, look at it here, and then I, I want to walk through it once, and then we read it out loud together. Uh, first, before we read it out loud together, here's what it said. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, that's full deity, and also perfect in manhood, full humanity, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, that was, uh, re in the debate, reasonable meant uh, human, uh, able to reason like we can, uh, soul and body. Consubstantial or homoousios of the same nature with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, that means the same nature as we have, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. That was, having begotten didn't mean created, it meant having a relationship of Father and Son before all ages. And in these latter days, for us and for our, saint, our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood. Now, there was debate. Could they call Mary the mother of God? There was a phrase that says, the mother of my Lord uh, in Luke. Uh, but they, as long as they attached according to the manhood to it, they were willing to say it. The mother of God according to the manhood, but not according to the deity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. And now here's the heart of it to be acknowledged in two natures, that's human and divine, inconfusedly, unchangeably. That's against Eutyches that said you put the drop of ink in water and it's confused and changed and made into something else. They said, no, sorry, Eutyches is not confused and it's not changed. The humanity didn't change and the deity didn't change and they didn't get all mixed up. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. That's against Nestorius, who said, hey, you got two persons. They can be divided and separated. They said, no, no division, no separation. 
the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. That's what I was trying to explain, where Jesus can be omnipotent and yet weak. He can be omnipresent and yet in one place. The property of each nature is preserved and concurring in one person, not two persons, and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. And so that was as... that. Now that has stood uh, since 451 A.D., as the best attempt of the church to understand this. There were some people later called monothelites, one will, who said this idea of two centers of consciousness, we reject, we don't want it, and they became kind of a, 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 a tiny little marginal group, uh, but most of the church accepted two centers of consciousness and two uh, wills, a human and divine. And so that was the Council of Chalcedon. Now, I was going to have us read this why don't I just do the, but, I, but instead of reading it out loud, I think we've got two. Well, why don't we, why don't we read the second half, all right? And then I've got, and I've got a couple of hymns, and then we'll be done. To be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Let me pray, and then we'll sing two songs. Lord Jesus, how great and wonderful you are. And Lord, we stand here in a way trying to understand and explain your word and believe everything it says and affirm that it's true and understand it as best we can, and yet, in another sense, again and again we stand here and say, we don't know anymore. Great indeed, Lord, is the mystery of our religion, that you were manifested in the flesh, we say with the Apostle Paul. Lord, how great you are. We worship you, we exalt you, and we thank you that you forever remain truly God and truly man. Lord, I just, I just wonder if you aren't smiling at us um, because you understand this fully and we are just attempting in little ways with our minds to try to understand. Lord, help us to understand rightly to the extent that your word allows and then to remain silent in everything else and simply acknowledge you as true God and true man whom we worship forever. Amen.